and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 79, recorded on November 11th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you. And it's on a week where we have some upsets, we have some big wins and some surprises. Let's start with the controversy, and that is, can you or can you not boot Linux on these new Macs with the T2 chip? Well, the answer to that is it's complicated. So this T2 chip is an ARM chip that is in the new MacBook Air and the new Mac Mini, and it's been in the iMac Pro for a while. And it controls a lot of stuff to do with security on these Macs. And one of the things that it controls is secure boot. And by default, it doesn't have the certificate to boot anything other than macOS or a bootcamp version of Windows 10. So you could say that they won't boot Linux, but you can turn that secure boot off and then you can boot into Linux. Right. It's secure boot, but not quite as we know it, because by default, it ships and only macOS will ship. A verified version, a signed copy of macOS from Apple is the only operating system that will ship on this hardware. That's part of the security nature of it. So that way you can't accidentally load a compromised version of macOS. You can turn that off. But like Joe said, it's not necessarily following Secure Boot as we know it. It doesn't have that famous Microsoft security certificate. But there is a signed version when you use Bootcamp. Apple manages that certificate for you using the Bootcamp Assistant. And when it creates the installation media, it is then possible to boot Windows 10 on that hardware. But even if you have that certificate, it doesn't necessarily mean you have any drivers for the T2 chip because the T2 chip not only does security, but it's also the SATA controller. And so that's why even if you disable Secure Boot and then you can boot into Linux, try running Gparted or an installer, and it just simply doesn't see the internal SSD, you could install it to like a Thunderbolt device or a USB drive or whatever, but you can't get it installed to the internal SSD of these new Macs. And that is what has annoyed a lot of people. Yeah, and I know, breaking news here, uh, the best system to run Linux isn't a Mac. Everybody uh, sit down and take a deep breath. I know you're shocked by that. But I was having a conversation with a developer at Linux Academy who uses Fedora on a Mac Mini. And I, you know, I was talking to him about it when the new Mac Mini came out. And he said, the old Mac Mini had been around for so long that those of us that wanted to use Linux on it had it really figured out. Like, you really knew all the ins and outs. And so it was actually a fairly viable Linux workstation that took up a small footprint. And if you needed Mac, Mac OS for some reason, you could dual boot into it. Sort of like people used to dual boot into Windows. Well, there's a group of Linux users that want to dual boot into Mac OS. But this new Mac Mini doesn't provide that currently, just simply because the driver support isn't there. And that's really the nature of the upset. But Chris's bit of advice would be, just buy another piece of hardware, just get something else besides a Mac, and you don't have to fight with this. Not only are there vendors that make computers specifically born to run Linux, but there's also machines that are sold by a lot of known vendors that are very simple to get Linux running on it, and you can get to work instead of fight with the hardware. Maybe down the road, Apple will acknowledge this need by developers, and they'll create a signed version of the bootloader for Linux or something that the open source community can use. It's kind of confusing what they could actually do that could be scalable, but maybe there's some action they could take. But until Apple makes that effort, I wouldn't really vote with my wallet when it comes to Apple hardware. Personal opinion. Well, I've got a confession to make. I own two Macs. The audience are probably not going to believe that, but don't worry, they're Core 2 duos. One of them was given to me by Alan Pope, an iMac, which has got a lovely screen, lovely speakers. 
And uh, I've also got an old uh, MacBook Pro, the the big 17-inch um, aluminium one. <laughs> the lunch tray. <laughs> yeah, and that has got amazing speakers for a laptop. And that's what I use it for, media consumption. Now, the thing is, those two have both been abandoned by Apple. They're not getting any more security updates on the old version of macOS that they're running. I think, actually, the laptop's actually an OS X Lion. I think that was before macOS. Anyway, that is the angle that I'm looking at this from. Right now, you would say, obviously, don't buy a Mac if you want to run Linux on it. There's buy a Dell or Entraware, System76, whatever. But we're talking down the line here. The used market. The hand-me-down scenario. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where this is a problem for me. If you can't install Linux on it now, then you might not be able to once it's been abandoned. And it's not going to be supported for that long. And this is very expensive hardware that is really good. You know, you can say whatever you want about Apple. Their hardware is generally really good and actually lasts quite a long time. And the Core 2 Duo machines that I've got are working absolutely fine running GNU slash Linux. You know, proper good old-fashioned Linux. And I say old-fashioned, they'll run the very latest kernel and Mm -hmm. all the security stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, everything's fine with them. Still getting plenty of life out of those old machines. Yeah. But don't you think by the time this new Mac Mini or MacBook Air gets to that hand-me-down scenario point that perhaps the open source community will have come up with something? Or is this T2 chip the big change here? Because this is a custom Apple piece of kit here. It's essentially an iOS device and a Mac using an ARM CPU with their A-series system on a chip that even has the secure enclave, and that's doing the SATA management. Uh, how how could we ever have any potential of writing drivers for it? I mean, does this T2 change the game, you think? Maybe the hand, hand-me-down scenario is gone now? That's what I'm worried about, but then never underestimate the open source community. Right. They are <laughs> That's very, very true. clever people. <laughs> yeah, you just really, you won't know. And the only way it's likely to ever happen in a weird ironic sense is if this machine turns out to be a success and a tonner on the market, which is in a weird way voting against making them compatible with Linux, even though if that is the very thing that drives their Linux compatibility. That's an odd one. Maybe we should just stay in the odd territory and let's talk about Microsoft and Linux, which for some of us can still feel a bit odd. Yeah, so the Windows subsystem for Linux has received some new features in the Windows 10 October 2018 update including one feature that I use in XFC all the time. I have right-click, open terminal here, and they've got it in Windows 10 now, open Linux shell here. In Explorer, in Explorer. Yeah. Wow. You can open a Bash shell from Explorer now. That is, um, that's almost as big as uh, Notepad now supporting Linux line endings. Like those two things right there are like huge. (laughs) Yeah. Back in the day, though, back in the day, when I was when I was working on Linux and Windows systems a lot, uh, like Linux Samba servers that Windows systems were connecting to, and I tried to open up like a config file or a Bash script in Notepad, it's just it was a mess. Yeah, and then you go into like Word Wrap, and that's not working, and like, oh, why isn't it? <laughs> so now that's going to be fixed, which is good, I suppose. I mean, is is all this good? That's the question that I always ask here, and you know, copy paste support as well, which has got a lot better, right? This one, too, uh, even kind of outside of the Linux subsystem, but kind of still in the same category, is support for Chocolatey. Now, Chocolatey is sort of like brew for Mac OS or app for Debian. And this was something I discovered when I did a Windows 10, live in Windows 10 week challenge for Coda Radio like a, almost a year ago. 
And I just couldn't get anywhere without a package manager. I have really come to use a package manager as part of my workflow. I want something, it's just an apt away. And this is what Chocolaty brings to Windows 10. And Microsoft has teamed up with that community and the Box Starter config tool to make it easier to automate those setups and deployments of Windows machines that already have Chocolaty installed and ready to go up to date. That's pretty great because then if you're creating a standardized image for your IT department, you can now just include Chocolaty as part of that. Well, you say it's great. And I ask the question again, is this all good? The better the subsystem gets the less reason there is to use proper Linux. It's still not proper Linux, though. And the closer and closer they get, the more tantalizing it is to just to get proper Linux because you get in that uncanny valley that's more frustrating than anything else. When it's the command prompt on Windows and you have tools like Ping and DIR, it's like, oh, it's kind of like Bash. This is adorable. But when you get really close but you still can't have it all, I think that's going to encourage more people to try out desktop Linux than anything that Microsoft has done previously. But I look back at this whole history now of the Windows subsystem and the open sourcing of .NET Core and all of that that has sort of accumulated to what we have today, and that seems to be that Linux is doing better than ever. All this has done is just a drove more Linux users. It seems to have slowed Linux down in the least, and I imagine it'll just continue. You're such a glass half full, man, aren't you? No doubt you'll see the same thing here then, that Samsung have clarified what's going on with this Linux on Dex situation. Oh, I wish I could be, but I watched <laughs> the video, and um, they really kind of disappoint in this video. So the idea is so beautiful. It goes back to convergence that we all dreamed of when uh, Canonical set off on that great journey one year. And now fast forward to 2018, and the idea is back, and this time it's being proposed by Samsung, but this time it's a little different. It's using a desktop environment that you can get installed on the Samsung phone that you can then launch the Linux environment from, which runs out of a container and is based on Ubuntu 16.04 as of right now. Well, Ubuntu 16.04 is a solid Linux distro, isn't it? Yep. I mean, 18.04 would be nice, and apparently they're working on that. But for now, I'd take 16.04, no problem. And if this is possible, it may be possible for the community to create their own install of 18.04 or even another distribution of Linux altogether. That's not what concerns me. What concerns me, and bear in mind it is early days, but what concerns me is the video they released is clearly doctored to make the system seem more performant. And the mistake that they made was they have the seconds indicator on in their desktop clock, and so you can just see where they sped the video up because the counter just starts flying. <laughs> and, and it's done when applications are loading or large, complex things are loading, and they speed up the time of the video to make it seem like the device is faster. And the concern I have is even with the video sped up, it seems barely fast enough. What, people speeding up videos to try and make a point? <laughs> I uh, that wouldn't happen this week, would no, it? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I am... Um, Spoke to some people at Canonical who actually saw this in the flesh this week, and they said it was actually really fast and they were really impressed with it. So I don't know if that video is maybe an earlier build of it or something, because apparently this is really, really good. I've not seen it firsthand, but I trust the people who've told me this. Well, remember, we were talking about this since the initial demo in 2017. So this is something they must have been working on for a while. So you would hope that if they've been sitting on it, it has been to refine it and it absolutely seems like one of those, you'd have to see it to really judge it. And everybody has a different threshold for what speed means to them. However, if this thing could get you a basic desktop web browser 
that supported like extensions and all of the things that I come to expect from, say, a full Chrome or a full Firefox. And I could easily get to a terminal and a few of my other favorite Linux apps. It doesn't have to be a speed demon because those are SOS type situations where I'm plugging my phone in and I am saving the situation by having access via my phone. They pitch it as a tool for developers to create applications. I can't help but see it as a sysadmin's lifeboat. Like this is where you bring your emergency tool set. You can plug this thing in and get access and bring your infrastructure back up online. And if it's slightly slower than your Core i7 laptop, that's okay. What really impressed me, though, was the, the Galaxy Tab S4, because this is the Note 9 and the Tab S4. Right. The Note 9 needs an external screen, but the, the, the Galaxy Tab S4 doesn't. Good point. You can run this on the tablet screen itself, so it becomes a standalone device at that point. Now, that is pretty cool. I was really kind of thinking it more from the phone angle in the pocket, uh, but, uh, you know, that actually sounds pretty good since the screen's built in. I hadn't really given that much thought. I wonder, I wonder how that will perform. It's almost, almost makes me want to grab one just to try it, Joe. You know, like when you see that kind of stuff, you're like, is this going to be a flop? Is this really possible? You don't know until you use it. Maybe I'll get lucky and have an opportunity to put my hands on it because it is, it is tempting. We have wanted this for a very long time. And it, and it could be an iPad Pro killer for some people. Yeah, well, I may or may not have been looking on eBay today, but uh, no, too much, I'm afraid. I'm Are not they? spending 500 quid on it plus. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I'll keep an eye on it. And if the opportunity comes up, I will get my hands on it. Maybe I can get a review unit one of these days too because I'd love to try it because it could be great. It really could be great. And then you also have the advantage of having an Android tablet if you like to have things like Netflix and some of the other streaming apps or commercial applications that are easily available via the Play Store. So there's a nice balance there, potentially. What I'm really, really hoping is that some enterprising people will port this to other Android devices and it won't just be these two Samsung ones. I don't know how realistic that is, but again, I have a lot of faith in this uh, hacking community, especially the Android community. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the very early stages of Canonical's phone effort was essentially getting Ubuntu running on top of an Android layer? Yeah, which I think they should have stuck with, but... That's what I was, ju was just going to say that. Imagine for a moment if a hardware-neutral vendor had created a really fast layer that ran on top of Android. And maybe back then the technology wasn't there because you maybe didn't have kernels new enough to support containers. And now instead of running it in a virtual environment, which is much more overhead, you can run it in a container, which is much more minimal and requires a lot less hardware, which means it's going to work a lot better on a mobile device. So maybe the tech just wasn't quite there yet, at least in widespread adoption. But you're right, Joe. What would make me probably 100 times more excited about this is if this was an open source project we were talking about that was going to be available for the Pixel phones, it was going to be available for the OnePlus phones, et cetera, et cetera. It being limited to Samsung devices honestly makes it less compelling to me because Samsung devices are not particularly compelling to me. I just don't like the Samsung software. I think big speed can die in a fire. Those kinds of things make them non-compelling devices for me. So even though they're doing this, I'm just not super inclined to pick one up. The tablet might be the only kind of exception to that because that's kind of neat that it's on the same screen. But you know, you know I'm following, like if this was a project that was widely deployable on general hardware, 100 times more exciting. Well, that was kind of promised by Maru OS. And I remember being very excited about that. That was Debian with XFCE in a container running on top of Android on a couple of Nexus devices. But I haven't heard anything for months about that. 
and I looked into it and yeah, there's not been any new releases for months and months and months on that one, which is a real shame because I thought that had real promise. Without having Samsung and their proprietary stranglehold on it, this was all open source. So I really hope that Mario OS springs back into life soon, maybe inspired by this, but until then, I suppose we'll have to rely on Samsung. Yeah, I guess I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, how how about something that's available to just about every Android user that's on Linux? And that's two pieces of software. Let's start with KDE Connect, which has a brand new fancy version both for the desktop, but their Android app as well. Yeah, the very best thing about using the Plasma desktop, as far as I'm concerned, is KDE Connect. I'd say it's like 10 things about the Plasma desktop, but this is in the top five for sure. It really kind of bridges the gap and is a type of convergence that is just about enough for me. And it allows me to manage the notifications from both devices, control playback, even share the clipboard, which is one of the most functional capabilities that I find. And in a pinch, I'll also use my phone as a remote mouse. And maybe the best thing about KDE Connect is how simple it is to set up. You install the app on your phone, you go to KDE Connect settings in the system settings, you enter the pin code in, and they're talking over Wi-Fi over a secure channel. It's pretty brilliant. And they're upping their game with this next release, and they are dropping support for older versions, 4.0 and older of Android, to, to gain some functionality, to gain some security. It, and it does mean sort of closing the door on about 400 users of the software, but that's the kind of decision that projects like this need to make from time to time. And they, they based it on data, and I think it's a fair one for the, the wider user base. Yeah, it is a shame, but in order to target Android 8 and above in the Play Store, they had to make this decision. And you know, I was kind of wrestling with it myself, whether it was a good idea. And they could just go F-Droid only, but realistically, if they want to get this into the hands of as many users as possible, it has to be in the Play Store as well as F-Droid. And therefore, they have to play by the Play Store rules. And 400 people is not insignificant, but you know, they have to just use the data, as you say, and, and make the decision. So it's a shame that they had to do it, but I think they did have to do it. One of the new features is the run command now supports triggering commands using the KDE Connect URL syntax, which is really useful for integration, say, with NF NFC tags around your place. So maybe in your office, you could have an area where your phone registers an NFC tag, and then it triggers an action on your computer. That could be some cool ways to automate things that don't require any cloud integration or anything like that. Your two boxes on the same LAN, triggering action based on tags. You could have, say, an NFC tag by your bed if your computer's in the room that you sleep in. When you trigger that, it could put the monitors to sleep. And there's a lot of ways you can actually kick off scripts in KDE using that URL structure. So I would have to try around build something, but it really has my mind churning on the possibilities. That's going to be a great feature. Well, the biggest feature for me is uh, you can now send files to Pantheon files. I'm not really interested in that, but you can send them to Thuna. <laughs> yes. And you know, really the GNOME users aren't left out. Uh, there is also GS Connect, which saw a new release. Yeah, and this is using the KDE Connect app on the phone, but it's using a GTK front end on the computer, so it's properly integrated with GNOME. And with this new release, they rewrote it to better conform to GNOME's design guidelines, so it's it looks nice, it works good in high DPI, and uh, supports accessibility features now, too. 
But isn't this the beauty of open source that you can have one app on the phone that works for both of them? You know, you wouldn't get that with Samsung, would you? <laughs> yeah, really back to the Samsung point, right? This is why this is a way more exciting project is it's universally available to all of us and there's even availability for people that don't use the KDE desktop. Uh, or, or you Fedora users, you just got a treat in this new release. There's improvements to package kit support, uh, especially for Fedora users, which was a fix that was submitted by a single contributor to the project. And now it's rolled up in here. And that kind of stuff is, to me, a lot more excited than, say, the Samsung DeX. I do kind of want to see both work, though, so there's room for both. And I may end up being a user of both one day. But it's nice to see both GS Connect and KDE Connect getting these updates, one of the cooler projects out there for desktop integration, at least for the phones that we have today. Uh, but what about the phones that we're going to have tomorrow, or will that be the next day, or will it be next week or next year? <laughs> Who knows with the Librem 5, eh? Ah, uh, yes. We have an update. And you know they're trying to set a tone in the post when they start by running down the recent hurricanes and typhoons that have delayed production. Mm. So they're kind of, you know, setting the table here. <laughs> and it looks like things are slightly behind schedule. Now, they have verified a lot of the individual hardware components. There's still some that are missing. But as we record right now, Purism CTO Nicole Ferber writes that she's a little reluctant to commit exactly on timetables. Um, what she does know at this point is the PCB fabrication here in the USA will take 11 business days. They have to make 300 of those boards, which are complex, and there's 160 different parts and more than 500 components in total per board. And that just means it takes some time, even with the amazing machines they have to put them all together. And that's the minimum driver of the timetable. Then you have the testing. It'll probably take another week or so until they can give the green light for PCB fabrication to fully begin and complete production. About two weeks for them to then be built and another week for production, then assembly, and then testing, and then shipping. And that puts it right into the holidays. So there's a lot of moving parts, but their best, best, bestest effort is to try to get all of the backers their new toys before the end of the year. Yeah, this is just a development kit, so this isn't the final thing, which they'd originally promised first quarter. I think they'd even said January of 2019, so it has slipped massively. They'd originally planned to ship these development kits in the summer, so they're, what, basically five, six months behind? And, you know, this got me thinking, you've done contracting before, I've done contracting before, and one trick that I learned very early on was to always tell the client that it was going to take about twice as long as you thought it was going to take. And then if it takes like, you know, a little bit longer than you thought, then they're happy with it. And maybe they should have been a bit more pessimistic here because I can't help but feel that they went for the very best case scenario with every stage. And that was January 2019. Whereas in reality, the way this has slipped, it's probably going to be like Q4 2019, I think it's safe to say. And if they'd said end of 2019 and then somehow managed to do it in like spring, everyone would have been over the moon with it. This is the idealism that we've all been kind of sniffing from the beginning, saying, boy, that seems a little ambitious. Boy, that seems a little, that right there seems like it's really pushing it. Like that's been the commentary about this entire thing since the very beginning. And that is the dichotomy of purism at its core. In order to be audacious enough to think that you could bend the PC industry into opening up the hardware around the Intel chip, or that you could take on Android and iOS and make a dent in the market and sell phones with physical switches to turn off hardware components, and even think that there's consumers that could grok that advantage, is audacious in its thinking. 
it's very optimistic in its thinking. And you you almost have to have people willing to think that way for anybody to ever try something new because nothing would ever change otherwise. But then at the same time, those people are not very good at fully actuating all of the potential negatives. They need pessimists on their team that they listen to that sit there and go, well, that's not a good idea. That won't work. And then they have to they have to have like an engaging back and forth. And if the whole company is being run by a top-down approach where it's idealism at the top down, these are sort of the things that end up happening. And so backers are just sort of left trying to guess these dynamics when they back it. And then you sit back and just watch how the project unfolds. Yeah, I was going to say they could hire me if they wanted a bit of pessimism, but I'm a bit busy these days, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, you know, Joe, you do give them this for free, so there's always that. Con- yeah, that's true. This is consulting time with Joe and Purism. <laughs> they have some subsystems left to validate as well, I should just point out, like Bluetooth, camera, the wireless controller, the touch controller, the USB roll switching. There's some major things they have validated, the microphone, the Ethernet, the audio codec, the charge controller, general USB-C compatibility, but there's still some fundamentals that they're working with, and they still have to forward port drivers because, remember, they're working with hardware that doesn't necessarily have the drivers that that they're using in the current kernel that they're using. So there's a lot at play here besides just the manufacturing of the dev kits. Yeah, there's so many moving parts here, and who knew that making a phone especially a phone that was trying to be as free as it possibly could be, would be difficult. Well, I think we told them that, didn't we, a year ago when we first heard about this? It's like they're not attending our consulting meetings, Joe. (laughs) Yeah. Why are we giving them all this advice for free? (laughs) All right, well, let's end on a bit of bad news and a sort of retrospective, really, and that is that Nexus devices are finally dead. The 5X and the 6P have received what's pretty much going to be their last... OTA and their last security update. And so that's it. It's kind of the end of the Nexus devices as we know it. Obviously, they'll live on with custom ROMs, but official ROMs-wise, that's it. It's pixel or nothing now. Yeah, I I am both a bit sad to see it go because I liked the idea of the Nexus line, create a Google reference device that was in a price range that mortals could afford, that developers could buy to try building apps. And it did serve that purpose for a while. However, I've uh, recently become the owner of a Pixel 3, the smaller one, and quote-unquote smaller, and it's a fine phone with an incredible camera and a great size, good screen, nice performance. It's um, it's really, by far, the best Android device I've ever used. And if, if that's the trade-off they had to take to get Android to that level, maybe it's worth it for most consumers. I... I miss my Nexus 6P. That's one of the reasons I got the Pixel 3, because I knew this was coming. So I rode that 6P all the way to the end, and uh, it served me well. But the Pixel 3 is, in every measurable way, a better phone. Well, that's because it's targeted at consumers, isn't it? Whereas the Nexus devices were targeted at developers and enthusiasts and power users, whereas the idea, at least with the Pixel, is that it's going to be sold to the masses, whether or not they're delivering on the numbers that they hoped they would. I don't know. I mean, we're three generations in now. Google's got a lot of money to burn on this. So we'll see if this actually pans out long term. Yeah, I doubt it's selling in big numbers, although I think it's selling through Verizon now. I kind of see a different 
take, I mean, we don't have to make this about the Pixel, but just a quick aside, I see it more as a, an Android phone for iPhone potential users because it's sort of all neat and tidy. It's taken care of. It feels like an ecosystem. There's Pixel Buds and there's Pixel Chargers. Um, but what the Pixel is really good at is just bringing in all of the Google services. So if you're in Google Apps for your work, uh, if you've got Google Email and you've got Google Calendar and Contacts and things like that, the Pixel is really a showcase for Google services. And that's what it's biggest strength is. And the Nexus line didn't quite get there, didn't quite close the gap. Um, going forward, this just means that your Nexus device will keep working as it is, but you won't be getting any kind of security updates or critical vulnerabilities of any kind fixed from Google directly. However, there are often community ROMs out there that will extend the life of your phone for a couple of more years at least. So this is a great opportunity now that Google's no longer supporting you. If you still think your uh, Nexus 5X or 6P is a viable device, this is a great time. This is the perfect time to jump into the ROM community. Start slow and learn and get more life out of your phone, just like Joe's getting more life out of those old Macs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my advice to you with your 6P is download.lineage.org slash angler. And you can have a ROM today as people listening to this brand new nightly that will be totally up to date with security updates and everything. Nice. And so it'll be, as you say, a year or two probably before it gets abandoned by lineage. And by that point, the battery will be totally shot and you'll probably dropped it and stuff. But I mean, even my Nexus 4 is getting security updates even now, and that phone is years and years old, so it might even be more than a couple of years from now. Yeah, this is the, like I said, it's the perfect time. Like, what do I have to lose? I've got the Pixel phone, so if the if I break the phone, I'm I'm fine, and likely it'll go just fine. So it's the it's just a, a great opportunity, so I will. I will do that, because I also know that if I get stuck, I'm just going to telegram you, Joe, it's not working. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, well, there's many, many more things developing. Every single week, there's something going on. There's a lot out there, and you can get a digest of it right here every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Bye.